ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. John Lemon was seven years old when he came across a book about an African painted dog. These are wild dogs and they're kind of mangy looking with big Mickey Mouse ears. They're not major attractions at most zoos. But the heart follows its own logic and John immediately fell in love with African painted dogs. The only problem was, how was he going to get from his home in Dubbo, in the central west of New South Wales, to where these animals lived, in sub-Saharan Africa? Luckily for John, the answer was being built in his own backyard. The famous Dubbo Zoo opened when John was a kid, and after he finished at high school, he worked his way up there, managing carnivores and primates, and eventually being in charge of the big cat breeding program. And finally, John got his chance to head to Zimbabwe and see his African-painted dogs in the wild. And what he witnessed up close about how these animals look after one another, well, it made him love them even more. These days, John splits his time between Perth Zoo, where he's the manager of zoology, and Zimbabwe, the headquarters of his painted dog conservation group. Hi, John. Hello, how are you? Very well. Tell me about how you first discovered these animals. Take me back to the seven-year-old you. What was happening? Oh, well, when I was seven years of age, I read a couple of books by Hugo Van Loy and Jane Goodall, Jane's late ex-husband, on painted dogs, known then as Cape hunting dogs or African wild dogs, and I just fell in love. So those books were solo and innocent killers, and all I wanted to do was learn more about them and to work with them which was, you know, quite exciting and probably a little bit odd. Why did you fall in love with them? What was it about the the characters you met in those books that really drew you in? The dogs are the most successful land predators in the world where nine out of every ten chases ends in the kill. They're the most social carnivore in the world. They look after their own. They're weak, they're sick, they're injured. And Solo was a, a young puppy that ended up being orphaned that they tried to hand raise and had all sorts of complications because only a dog or painted dog knows how to raise the painted dogs. And I was just so intrigued by, you know, how fast they could run and how they hunted and how they communicated. And it just got me intrigued from that age. Were there photos in those books? There were. And, you know, I always say to people, because you know, I've been to Africa 70 or 80 trips now, I say get to Africa now because it is changing with climate change and burgeoning human populations and different things. But in those books, yes, there's some old black and white photographs. I mean, I described them in the introduction as, as mangy looking. Was that fair, John? How do, how do they look to you? A purpose-built social <laughs> carnivore that's probably the most persecuted carnivore in all of Africa. But, um, you know, the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And, and to me, you know, they're just amazing. How do they look? How big are they typically? Dogs are around, you know, 24 to 28 kilos. Probably the same size, roughly, as a German Shepherd. They have these large Mickey Mouse ears, which obviously help cool the dogs down. They have large vein networks and act as a car's radiator. And we've also put a model in a wind tunnel, and those ears actually will pull down air over the body to cool them down, which is quite unique. Um, they have this big square jaw. They have carnesial or cutting teeth, which are bicusp, unusual to other carnivores. They have these multicoloured coat patterns and... The Latin name Lycaon pictus equates the painted wolf-like animal. So when they're born, they've got this sort of black and white coloration and the tan comes out. And that coat pattern's unique. No two individuals are alike, just like our fingerprints. And that's how we identify them, by taking left and right photographs of the dogs. And often you get traits through different packs where you can see the lineage and who they're related to. Right down to the end, they have this white tail tip, which they use for communication as well. So to me, they're just beautiful. <laughs> well, as a little kid, you, you were reading about animals in other countries and, you know, watching documentaries about wild animals in Africa. But what kind of animals were around you at, at home in Dubbo? Well, it's interesting. My grandmother lived out at Trangi, uh, for those out west. So, you know, Narromine, Trangi, Warren, Walgett all those areas, and I spent my childhood holidays fishing out on the Darling River. Um, If it wasn't fishing and camping, I was out droving sheep and cattle for my grandmother. So I was always around livestock, and my dad bred fish and birds as a hobby. 
And then February 28, 1977, I remember the moment when Western Plains Zoo opened for the first time and I was probably the fifth car through. (laughs) I can remember it sitting in the front seat of my elder sister's uh, boyfriend's GTR XU1 Tirana, to be exact. (laughs) What a car. uh, What a car. (laughs) If only we could have it today, hey? And I was there just, you know, bug-eyed and just everything was amazing, getting to see it built, getting mum and dad to take me out there every sort of step of the way to peer through the perimeter fence going, this zoo's going to open soon, I just can't wait to go. So it was always, you know, that cliche of the child who used to catch the frogs and the reptiles and that was me. For a kid who was into animals, the fact that a massive safari zoo was being built in his backyard must have been like a dream come true. What was different about this zoo? It was really unique when when it first opened in 1977. What was different about it? Yeah, well, it's an open-range zoo concept, so it's still to today it's the largest open-range zoo in Australia, but you're able to drive around a seven-kilometre sealed circuit and see the animals in quite naturalistic large enclosures in large groups. And to me, that was like, wow, this is a huge change, huge change for the better as far as, uh, you know, displaying animals and good for welfare and, um, you know, social structures. So when you were a little kid driving in in that Tirana, you knew this was somewhere you wanted to work. How long did it take before you managed to get a job there? Well, I studied right through, obviously, um, biology being my best subject. I was in the top one percentile of Australia, so I was doing something right because all I wanted to do was work with animals. And uh, I finished my HSC in 89 and got my first contract in 89. So, yeah, I was pretty much there within sort of weeks of finishing my HSC. What was the, the animal that you worked with on your very first day? Do you remember? I do. It was African elephants. Um, it was... A little bit different to these days. It was pretty much, you know, day one. I hadn't even turned 18. You're working with, um, you know, African elephants. Don't step over that line there. They'll kill you. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it went from there. So, What was uh, famous t- about the, the elephant, the bull elephant that was at the... Uh... Oh, Congo. Yeah, what a beautiful boy he was. Congo was actually one of the baby elephants in Hatari, the movie with John Wayne and, and that famous scene of him crashing through the china shop. Um, he was one of those. So he ended up at Western Plains Zoo, but he was such a spectacular animal. He was amazing. Zoos were different places. I mean, it's not that long ago, but zoos were different places back then. What kind of skills did you learn in the early days at Dubbo Zoo? Yeah, it has. It's changed dramatically. Obviously, advances in veterinary science and also health and safety practices, but we had to do a lot of capture and restraint. So, you know, basically, you know, antelope and deer and, and what have you, we'd catch them by hand and, you know, wrestle them down to do vet work and different things. And oh, wait, t- take me through that. First of all, how do you capture an antelope by hand? Yeah, we had what, had what was called a rubber room or dark room and you'd run them all into there and then you'd basically feel your way through and work out the males and females with the horns and then push through back into the daylight and... <laughs> Why would you do that in a dark room, John? Because they settle. They're they're really calm and quiet in a dark room. But uh, I tell you, once you give them that daylight, wow, (laughs) they're off again. Were they being knocked out as well as you were going to grab them? Often often drafting. So you still see farmers drafting sheep and cattle and that. It's still quite physical. And I think that's what's probably changed with the job. We have designed around that with, you know, exhibits and handling facilities and of course, the drugs and drug regimes to, you know, anaesthetise them have improved, but we used to do a lot of stuff by hand. Quite exciting. Grabbing an antelope, William, and I guess that's one thing. What about a, a cheetah grabbing that by hand? How risky is that? Uh, there were ones that I could grab by hand. They're often hand-raised and um, quite imprinted and, and knew me and loved me, to be honest. Um, they couldn't wait for me to come down. But some of the um, more wild ones that we had in captivity, you would anaesthetise with dart, with a dart. But um, yeah, I have, have a few scars from those animals over the years. And again, that's changed as well, the sort of access and exposure you can have to animals. You obviously weren't put off by it because you ended up running the National Breeding Program for Cheetahs at, at the zoo. How do you go about getting a, a mummy cheetah and a daddy cheetah to fall in love or how else we want to put it euphemistically, to make babies in a zoo environment. What, what was involved? 
the thing is to have a selection of females and walk the male along, and it's called Lover's Lane, and see how they interact. So it's like speed dating for Cheetah. So we'd walk him along. If she sort of chirped and barked at him and he did the same, it's a beautiful sort of call. And uh, once they start calling like that, you know it might be a good possibility of introducing them and there won't be sort of absolute chaos. They come into estrus or in season, and um, if they are sort of receptive to the male with a fence between them, they will start stutter barking and calling and she'll flip and flop on the ground saying, look at me, you know, I'm pretty (laughs) cool and sexy over here. And then we'd introduce the male. So if you didn't get it quite right, there'd be lots of fur flying and a few, you know, sort of slaps and cuffs around the head. But often that's actually foreplay as well. So you've got to know what you're doing, when to call it off or when to allow them to go all the way. But obviously cats are induced ovulators, so the male has a barbed penis and induces her to ovulate. And that can often be quite painful. And that's why if you've ever seen cats mating, once a male has finished mating, the female swings around and gives him a quick, you know, slap under the face or under the jaw because, you know, it can be quite painful. But John, um, you said you said obviously, but I was not familiar with the barbed penis prospect oh, okay. of cats. Well, Tell me go. more. Every, every day is a school day, so yeah, they have a <laughs> cats have a barbed penis, so yeah, it induces the female to ovulate, and it, as I said, the mating even with lions, for example, they can mate sort of right round the clock for days on end, and each time the male finishes mating, you can often see the female sort of retaliate and go, you know, that was a little bit uncomfortable, but, you know, there's a sexual urge or drive to procreate, so they go through this ritual. But cheetah are very difficult to breed. Where lions, there's not an issue in the wild or in captivity, but cheetah, you've got to find that right one, and you might have, you know, 50 females and only find one that's really receptive to breeding, and, you know, they're quite a challenge, but um, once you get them start breeding, those females usually you know, you can continue to breed them on and on. And what's the gestation period for a cheetah? Uh, The gestation for the cheetah is about 90 to 95 days. You know, you can have anywhere from, you know, one individual up to sort of four, five cheetah. And how how cute is a baby cheetah? Oh, cute as a button, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> they are cute. They are really cute. Well, there's cuteness once, they, once they're born, but as you say, there's a lot of violence or potentially a lot of violence involved in mating of, of adult cheetahs. What happened one time when uh, the TV vet, Dr Harry, came along to film some cheetahs mating for TV? Yeah, so we, we tried to get the first mating of cheetah on national TV and we had the Lover's Lane set up and we had a male called... Uh, Sarge. So we had him moving up and down Lover's Lane and all of a sudden he got frustrated and I had Dr. Harry sort of talking to me right there, talking to me in my ear and next thing Sarge attacked me. Attacked got a very, Yeah, so he just had a frustration. He wanted to get to the girls so he, his dew claw hooked me in the groin and drug all the way down my leg. But it, obviously my first thing was to make sure, you know, famous Dr. Harry wasn't injured. <laughs> so I had to try and get Dr. Harry off into one of the yards and get him somewhere safe. So we did that and, you know, it sort of ensued for a bit longer and eventually um, Sarge was so worked up when we put him in with a female at the time, they mated. And that was the first successful mating on national TV. Oh, my goodness. You turned out that you were the instigator. You were the driver to to Sarge's passion. Well, I think I was the third wheel, to be honest. (laughs) I was sort of, you know, trying to bring him on and... um, yeah, he took out his pent-up aggression on me, but I think it actually worked. So You said he, uh, he used his dew claws. What, what are they? A dew claw? Um, it's the inside upper claw that uh, cheetah use to basically grab their prey so they you know can trip them up or they can actually hook the dew claw in. Of course, cheetah have non-retractile claws. The rest of the claws are quite blunt, but they have this very sharp dew claw which they'll sort of, when they pounce on prey, They'll hook the claws in to try and pull them down. And normal domestic cats and dogs have them as well. If you've ever played, you know, with a ribbon with your cat and ended up getting swiped, can often be the dew claw. But, yeah, can be razor sharp. And when you've got a cheetah uh, up around 40 kilos pushing that down your gentle skin, um, yeah, it can hurt. How badly were you hurt after that? Oh, no, it was fine. You know, just a little bit of antiseptic. 
Just a flesh wound. <laughs> it wasn't so. the only close call you've had with a cheetah. What what happened to your hand? Oh, yes. Um, interesting uh, story. We had a male called Savo and he underwent a veterinary procedure and post-general anaesthetic under veterinary instruction, I was told to give him some food and he actually pretty much breathed that piece of meat and blocked off his esophagus and windpipe and I thought, oh my God. So he went into a bit of a fit. So as I did back then, um, you know, ask for forgiveness after you uh, act. I went in there and freed up the meat and still yeah, wasn't yeah. How, enough. How, how did you free it up? I forced his jaws open and put my hand in his mouth and, um, yeah, it didn't quite do the job. So I went in deeper and pulled the last piece of meat out and he took breath and then clamped down on my thumb and actually degloved it. So to today I've got this really cool um, memento to remember him by. How did you get out of that? Just pulled myself free. Um, Our health and safety officer at the time wasn't too impressed, but I just said... I would have done the same thing again to save his life. So, yeah, again, just a minor flesh wound. I actually called for veterinary assistance and said, you'd better bring some Band-Aids. And <laughs> when they got there, went, are you serious? You need to get that stitch back on. Yeah, this is not a Band-Aid situation, John. So you were working with all these different sorts of animals at, at Western Plains Zoo. Were there African painted dogs there as well? There were. So African painted dogs arrived at Western Plains Zoo about 1981. So... Yes, I got to see them uh, at 10 years of age and like, wow, there they are right in front of me, you know, alive and, and moving and not just in a, you know, in a book. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's one thing to encounter an animal in the zoo, but completely different to see them in the wild. When did you first get that experience? I was very lucky that I had a lot of supporters. So the Zoo Friend Association in New South Wales set up a fellowship for people who wanted to apply or keepers who wanted to apply to live their dream. So I was lucky enough to get a fellowship to travel to Africa in 2000 to go to a very small group, basically two gentlemen operating out of the back of two Land Rovers um, called, at the time, Painted Honey Dog Research in Wangi National Park in Zimbabwe. And I went over there for about six weeks and, and worked with those guys I think it was literally, I was only back about six weeks and I was back again. And then I had this great moment, this epiphany. I went back to my wife and said, are you okay if I quit my job, pretty much cash in my superannuation on the little that I had and sell everything I own, buy the house and I'll see you in three years? She went, sure, off you go. <laughs> really? That's, exa- that's exactly what we did. So we went down to, I guess, bare bones. So she struggled on. I went to Zimbabwe, built the largest rehab centre anywhere in the world for a single species. Then we went on and built a children's bush camp, so 21 houses for a five-day program for the local schools where we feed, educate and transport them for free. Then we went on and built a a visitor centre, which arguably is one of the best, I believe, in the world. John, this is such a big decision on all levels of your life to take. What was it about that first trip and that first experience with the the painted dogs in the wild that caused you to upend everything like that? What had you experienced? Um, I found my true meaning in life, I think. We were camping on the ground. We'd follow the dogs from daylight to dusk, so they mainly hunt during the cooler parts of the day. So, you know, as the sun comes up and as just before the sun goes down... We were sleeping 50 metres away from him in the swags, around a fire. You know, we'd watch them hunt. We'd watch the you know, social communication and the teamwork. We'd see puppies grow up. We'd see adults pass away. Everything was unfolding in front of me. I said, I've got to do more. You know, I heard a, a famous saying the other day, you know, someone said, you only live once, and it's not true. You die once, you live every day. And straight away I'm thinking, we've got to get over there and do something. You know, we're quite privileged after experiencing Africa. If you haven't been there, go, as I always say to people. You know, we've got a very privileged life, but the real world is unfolding in Africa every day, in the savannas and in the in the dry scalifral forests and in the Mapani woodlands, and I just had to go. Did yeah. you have to be careful around them? I mean, you were still getting to know what they were like in the wild. Were, were they interested in you, in humans, or, or what? Yeah, dogs have... Painted dogs have never been known to attack man in the wild. 
obviously you get uh, in captivity, the animals lose the fear of humans, and I have heard of you know some people being bitten by dogs, often accidentally, uh, but in the wild, no, they don't attack mankind. They're actually quite curious. If you're in a vehicle, they'll climb up and look in the windows and doors, but we don't want to overstep that sort of relationship. But when you're sleeping in the bush, the dogs aren't the issue. It's hyena. Hyena will come sniff around your camp at night and try and chew whatever's exposed, often your face, so you've got to be very quiet. careful of that. I've had dogs chase hyena over the top of our swags, literally run <laughs> over us. We've had lions in our camp. We have elephants sort of stop and sniff and move on so quietly that you didn't even know they were there. But no, not the dogs. We'd have our the telemetry gear going. You'd hear the dogs resting as soon as that pulse on the radio collar picked up. We'd pack our stuff up and follow them on their, what we call hunt follows. And then as soon as they bedded down for the afternoon, we'd do other work, go to schools and try and educate people, go and talk to the farmers, um, local communities, and then we'd be back ready for the dogs to hunt again. So you know, doing that day after day after day. So you really become part of the pack. But they do smell. Oh. And one of the interesting things with dogs when people see them in the zoo or in the wild is, oh, my God, do they smell bad. <laughs> and to me, it's almost like a perfume. I've always had a thing <laughs> for foxes, skunks, main wolves and painted dogs, that wild animal smell. And the dogs actually excrete a lot of excess urea out through their skin to conserve water. And they can be actually water independent in the wild, so they mainly get their fluids from the blood or drinking the urine out of the bladder of their prey. But if they do find water, they'll obviously take that on board. But way in which they try and conserve water is excreting this excess urea, and they do smell. <laughs> I wish we had smell, smell a vision or smell a mic. I'm really grateful we don't have smell a mic, I have to say. <laughs> but I feel there's nothing this dog could do or be that you wouldn't love, John. No, I love it, everything. Love it all. <laughs> so this social nature of the dogs, you know, you're saying they're the most social carnivore in the world. What does that mean in the wild? Very interesting. They have an awesome social structure. And I always say to people that humans could take a leaf out of their book. So the alpha female rules the pack. There is also an alpha male. And they're usually what we call monoestrous. So they only come into season once a year. Unless they lose their puppies, they can go again, which is what we call polyestrous. They have huge litters. They have recorded up to 21, 22 pups in a litter, and it's up to the whole pack to raise them. So they're pretty much weaned off mum at three to four weeks of age, and the rest of the pack start regurgitating meat on command. So they all bring it back and try and feed the puppies, because that's the future. There's just one female in the pack is actually reproducing, but all of the, the adult dogs help care for that litter. No, exactly. So you have un- uncles and aunties, and they all help. They go out on the hunt and then they'll bring food back and they'll regurgitate the meat up for the alpha female and the puppies while she's still in the den. When painted dogs have a litter, they use old aardvark holes or warthog holes or can dig their own. But when the puppies are at foot and they're now nomadic, they just sleep under low brush or under, around a tree, anywhere they feel safe. Once they get mobile, about seven or eight weeks of age, the aunties will sort of babysit them as the alpha goes back out and hunts with the rest of the pack. And then once they're sort of honed their skills, about 12 months of age, they start sort of learning how to hunt. And about 18 months of age, they become the most successful land predator in the world. Well, you spend a lot of time when you're in Africa following the, the painted dogs on their hunts. What's it like? What, what happens? Well, it's quite exciting. They have this what's called a pep rally, and anyone who's played sport, it's basically putting your hands in that sort of circle go. Let's go, you they, know. They start they like the, that. Yeah, well, not actually verbally like no. us, but <laughs> well, verbally as a painted dog language goes, but they have this high-pitched frequency like bird twittering noises. And through recent research, one of our colleagues, we know they also start to sneeze. <laughs> so they go around, choo, 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 and they get so excited for the pep rally and they go out and um, work as a team. So they can run at 60 kilometres an hour for up to five kilometres. So, you know, the cheetah, which was always one of my other passions, you know, 110 kilometres an hour, but they can only keep that up for like 400 metres and they're spent. The dogs are the most amazing animal to watch hunt. They're communicating with their ears. Some are taking up the chase. Some are backing off. Some are ambushing. So they'll sort of set them up pretty much like a cricket game in the slips and then the others will chase the prey through to them. 
But when they do get their prey, some take the face, some take the hindquarters, and the rest swiftly disembowel it. And it's all over, done and dust in about 15 minutes. They're oh, absolutely wow. amazing. And, and particularly in uh, Zimbabwe, where I work, the Endebele tribe call them Iganyana, which means greedy eater. And then once they've worked together as a, as a pack to bring down an animal, to bring down some prey, who chooses how that meat gets distributed? Like, is it the alpha male and alpha female who get first dibs? No. Well, that's interesting. Very good question because everyone thinks the lion is the king of the jungle and we always see the female or the lionesses doing most of the hunting, even though males will hunt. And then it's the males that eat first, the females, and the cubs get the scraps. Well, they flip that on its head with the painted dogs. The puppies are the first ones to eat. The puppies? The puppies, they get called in to feed first on the carcass, and then the adults um, eat after them. So it's quite special to watch these little puppies sort of running in, getting their feed, and then the adults just sharing. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. John, you were telling us how the painted dogs look after their young, but what about the bigger group? Is it is it just their puppies that they look after? They look after their weak, they look after their sick, they oh, look really? after their what injured. If an, if an animal's injured, it's not just cast off from the rest of the pack? No, it's not. And you'll see lions, they'll often leave injured members to fend for themselves and eventually they'll fade away and die. Or, you know, other planes game will often chase animals off so they don't draw attention of the predators. But the painted dogs, they look after, as I said, they're, they're sick, they're injured. And I've seen animals that, you know, have, have lost legs, have been snared around the neck and different things. And they nurse and lick their wounds. They take food back for them. And as I said, we could take a leaf out of the book, the way in which they make sure that the next generation looked after, but also the elderly are looked after and, and they're still part of the pack. Absolutely amazing. Is that fairly unique among wild animals in your experience? Yeah, it is. It is, particularly to the lengths that the painted dog goes. And one of the biggest threats to the painted dogs is, is um, snaring. Any type of wire from fencing wire, telephone cable, brake cables, conveyor belt cable, set up as a pretty much a hangman's noose. And it's set up on trails to catch planes game. But the trouble is the dog's an accidental byproduct of that. And they're following the animal trails as well to find food and water. And they get caught. And you only need a couple of the adult animals to be snared and you can actually lose the whole pack due to the fact that they're not at that age to support themselves. But I have seen dogs break free and I've actually seen a dog with two legs, one on either side, diagonal uh, legs were snared off. I've seen a hyena with only two front legs from snares. So the painted dogs aren't the target of, of snares People are trying to catch other kind of game. Did I understand that correctly? Correct, yeah. So uh, for those who live in Australia, if you've been on a farm, you'll see a dam, you'll see where the sheep and cattle always walk, and that's the, the game trail. In the wild, poachers will set up the wire snares at head height, so when the animal walks through, it just tightens up, it's tied to a tree and garrots the animal. But no, painted dogs are an accidental bycatch. Mm. They're after the smaller antelope. The trouble is they're indiscriminate, these snares. They're like a cancer and that they will kill until they're removed, and that's a big part of our job is removing those snares. What sort of relationships are there then between humans living in these parts of Africa and, and painted dogs? Uh, in the areas where we're very active, they've actually got a better appreciation, but that doesn't happen overnight because culturally, even in the farming community, they saw the dogs as a indiscriminate killer that killed cruelly, but obviously they're merely efficient. You know, a lion can take hours to kill its prey by suffocation and the dogs, yes, they do disembowel. The animal goes into a state of shock, but they're finished, done and dusted, and within 15 minutes they're moved on. Were farmers killing dogs directly then as well as them being um, taken accidentally by these snares? 
Yeah, correct. So the biggest issues for painted dogs in the wild are disease, like parvovirus, distemper and rabies, farmers shooting them, road accident victims, because they have a huge home range of between 350 and 750 square kilometres, so they often use roads and get hit by cars. Indiscriminate snaring, so obviously these wire snares out there. Managing more lines in some populations where they have active management of areas, so they prefer to have more line. And where there's a huge density of line, there's not so much a huge density of dogs. There is a term in science called kleptoparasitism, which means, you know, stealing of, of food and hyena and lions, if they're in sort of larger numbers, will actually steal the dog's food and make it mm. hard for them. And lions will also go out of their way to kill painted dogs. They're just this natural arch rival since day one. And, yeah, the lions will go out of their way to kill puppies and raid dens and do all sorts of stuff. So they have a hard life. So when you decided that you really needed to set up this rehabilitation centre to help care for these dogs and turn around this trajectory of declining numbers, who were the first dogs that came into your care? Tell me about John and Angela and how they came by that name. (laughs) John and Angela, yes. We got a phone call. Bulawayo is the second largest city in Zimbabwe. So we got a call to go to Bulawayo to a vet surgery where someone had dumped uh, these two painted dog puppies in a very crude crate made of chicken wire and timber and um, they were in such a bad state with rickets and you know, malnourished and turned legs and all sorts of horrible things and the vet didn't have an opportunity to do anything with them, wasn't capable of looking after them and, and different things. So they were the very first inhabitants in the rehab centre in 2002. They were unreleasable due to their injuries but they went on to be the best ambassadors for the species in the local area. Angela lived to 13. John lived to a grand old age of 15. Obviously, he had other company uh, once Angela passed away. But they solely would have had the biggest impact in the the 13 to 15 years on visiting tourists and school groups to have a better appreciation for painted dogs and to go on to not only understand them but love them and now conserve them and we've had several students come through our our program that now work for us so we've gone full cycle Mm. where they were misunderstood you know you look back in the late 60s early 70s the district commissioner would actually pay a bounty for painted dog tails to be brought back in because they wanted to pretty much wipe them out you've got to think you know 150 years ago there were 500,000 painted dogs in Africa all the way from you know, South Africa right up to the foothills in Mount Kilimanjaro. Now they've been extirpated or disappeared from 25 of the 39 countries that once existed. So there's a real threat and issue that they may go extinct in my lifetime, and we're not going to let that happen. If I can save single species that's been around for between three and five million years, that's not even related, closely related to anything else, they're in their own separate genus, I can save that animal in my short lifetime. I think that's pretty worthy. Those first two dogs carried your and your um, wife's namesake. Was that your choice, John, or how were they christened, John and Angela? That was actually from the staff that I'd taken on to train to look after the dogs. And they went, ah, Mr John, we have to name them after you and your wife. (laughs) So they became John and Angela. So probably not the most African names, but um, everyone knew John and Angela and Yeah, they were just amazing, you know, and they're both buried now with headstones and crosses at the facility, as do all the dogs that either are too injured to be put back in the wild. But we've had, you know, over 130 dogs go through the rehab facility, be put back with their natal packs, or we form new packs and put them back in the wild. So to see everything that you earned in the first part of your career sitting over there making a real difference. To me, that's rich. You know, I'm richer in other ways. I may not have the yacht or the Porsche, but I'm rich in experience, on, on life experiences. Given the amount of time and the number of trips to Africa you've made, the amount of time you've been there, do you notice the same dogs out in the wild again and again? Do you get to recognise them in that kind of way? We recognise the packs and obviously we see... Dogs and and packs continue on. So you see generational, you see packs get wiped out due to rabies or or road accident victims or complete whole packs wiped out with snaring. 
So you see, you know, the good and the bad, but you also see dispersals. So around 18 months of age, surplus females are driven out by the alpha female to find their own group. And often uh, young males will band together and go off and find these sort of, you know, single ladies walking around uh, and join up and form new packs. So we get to see new packs form and the whole evolution of the dogs. Tell me about a dog you, you named Heritage. Oh, well, <laughs> probably one of the highlights of my career to date, but also one of the toughest. So Heritage was a dog that was aimlessly wandering around one of the lodges just outside of Wangi. And I got a call saying there's a single dog, it's starving to death, it's looking for food. That's highly unusual because usually they you know, don't hang around humans. And uh, I found this dog exactly as the Bush Telegraph told me. Usually that's not the case. Usually, you know, totally opposite. And I said, what have we got? They said, we've got an old trap here that we used to catch crocodiles in. I said, can I borrow it? They said, you'll never trap a dog. I said, I'll see about that. Because <laughs> um, I didn't have any darting equipment. This was literally to go out and do a reconnaissance. And I had to deal with it there and then. I just had a drug box. Anyway, I sat out there all day and night getting bitten by mosquitoes and all sorts of horrible things. And eventually this dog went in. I thought, I couldn't believe it. How? You know, how did he get it to go in? I actually baited it in with food. And that's not usual. This is how sick and um, starving this dog was. I thought there's something really wrong. Anyway, obviously, once I anaesthetised the dog and got it out of the trap, I noticed it had two snares around its neck. One, it was so badly embedded that the knot that they'd twitched to make the loop had actually grown through the trachea. Mm -hmm. And the other one was so embedded in the neck, I could just see the end of it. So not only had it, you know, sadly gone into one snare and had been carried that snare around, it had broken it free, but it carried it around for a long time, probably months, was unlucky enough to get snared again. Were you able to, to operate on, on that poor dog? Yeah, so I actually cut the two snares off, did some minor surgery, it was quite beat up, and I had nowhere to say, like to put it for rehabilitation, so I tracked down one of the farmers, uh, quite an interesting character, who actually used to have a couple of pet lines as his guard dogs. And I said, can I borrow the old facility? I need to put these dogs in there. More dogs are going to come through, but we haven't finished the rehab. So Heritage was the first one in. And I guess after four and a half months of rehab, this dog bounced back. They're actually one of the most toughest animals I've ever dealt with, how they can go through these often terrible, agonising injuries and, and bounce back to full health. So we fed and, and nursed it back to health over four and a half months. And then Interestingly, a pack arrived on the fence line and they're actually talking to this dog very friendly. And I thought, <laughs> heavens forbid, I wonder if it, it's actually that it's Heritage pack. And we thought, hmm, let's monitor this a bit further because Heritage was due for release. So I knocked Heritage out again, put a, a radio collar on. I thought this is worth a try because now we'd been observing for about a week of these dogs turning up, having a bit of a friendly chat through the fence. If they weren't friendly... You know, it can turn aggressive quite quickly. And uh, anyway, long story short, we let Heritage out. Huge, massive greeting of you know, <laughs> overcome with joy. It was Heritage Pack. Oh, and they wow. wandered off. And that night I got to, to watch Heritage hunt and feed with its maternal pack again. And I think, yeah, that's still one of the highlights of my life. John, that's an amazing story. How would his mm. original pack have found him, do you think? Well, they, as I said, they have quite large home ranges, anywhere from 350 to 750 square kilometres, so they often come back past. So um, where I found Heritage wasn't that far, but obviously had got separated, whether due to human intervention, I would think. And, yeah, it ended up back crossing <laughs> paths again. How and, incredible. Um, just incredible. Well, another pup that uh, came across your path was one you ended up calling Lucky. How did you first come into contact with him? Lucky. Uh, <laughs> lucky by name, by nature, <laughs> I tell you. So we had a, a pack of dogs called the Impindo Pack, and we had them in our rehab facility because they were out in a communal area supposedly eating livestock or their goats. And through my research over the last 25-plus years, I know that less than 1% of their diet is livestock, particularly where you manage the livestock you don't, dogs don't take any. So they went to Parks and Wildlife and said, if the guys don't remove these dogs from the area, we're going to kill them. 
So we took the Impindo pack in and they actually had puppies at foot, Lucky being one of them. How do you take in a pack? It's one thing to get one individual dog in a, in a trap with food, but how do you bring in a whole pack? We actually have what's called a safe snare, so it doesn't tighten up on the neck. It's the same principle as the poachers do, but we safely snare them and anaesthetise them all within minutes. What, one by uh, one? Do you set up a whole bunch of snares or how does it work? Yeah, yeah. So as they return to the den, um, they've got to have puppies in the den. Otherwise, we have to dart every single one of them, which is even a bigger job. But we often use safe snares, which don't tighten up, don't leave any marks. Where they're monitoring as soon as they go in, we put a bag over and hand inject them. That's one method. If not, we actually dart them individually. Mm. So if one gets started and it goes to sleep, the rest don't usually travel far away and we can slowly dart the lot. So there's two different scenarios, but a hell of a lot of work. And when they come to in the the rehab facility or wherever you've got them, are are they distressed? How do they react to being in this weird new kind of environment? Oh, they are. They're not too sure where they are and they try and keep the distance and a lot of alarm calling. And we try and not feed them where they see where the food's coming from because we don't want them to imprint it because we need to get them back in the wild. But our large enclosure is over 2.1 kilometres around the circumference. It's quite large, so it's a huge parcel of land. And then when we do catch them up on the day for translocation, we uh, move them across into a smaller yard. We have a whole array of large cargo nets, run the dogs into those and we hand catch them and inject them. So... I wouldn't suggest that in um, Australasia in a zoo to do, but um, there's no workers' comp or OSH issues in Africa and we can often catch the pack with very little stress, move them via boxes and take them out into the wild and release them. It's always very worthwhile. And were these strategies that you had to kind of develop in your time over there? We did. Obviously, I take a lot of experience from you know nearly 35 years in the zoo industry and from my personal life working with livestock and animals, but yeah, we pretty much developed this. And yes, we, we've developed a lot of techniques on how to catch dogs, how to manage them in the rehabs part, how to remove them from snares when they're really distressed and, and damaged to forming packs, putting them back in the wild. I recently in South Africa translocated some dogs all the way from the Kalahari across to KwaZulu Natal and the methodology of how you do that. So there's no book on this. So we've, <laughs> I wouldn't have thought um, so, no. <laughs> You're writing it, I imagine, or at least it's in your head. We're writing it. <laughs> and not just me. I've worked with some great people, as I said. Well, take me back to Lucky. What happened after you released that pack? Yes, yeah, so we re- released the pack and for some reason uh, Lucky got disorientated but had a great uh, sense of homing and came back to the rehab centre that night. Just got completely separated. And we still don't know why, whether... Lions or hyena scattered the group and, you know, he, he ran aimlessly because the rest were running aimlessly trying to defend themselves and Lucky ended up back at the rehab centre and I had a fear, less than a 1% fear this might happen, but did due diligence, had some of the team out on the pack, but it was night time at that stage. Lucky turned back up and I didn't actually know Lucky was there. I was just waiting at the rehab again, sleeping in the Land Rover and heard... Uh, this huge commotion of four lines, and um, then I heard a yelp. I thought, oh, it's one of the puppies come back, and the lions have got him. And um, one of the our staff said, Mr John, don't go out. You know how dangerous lions are at night. I said, no, nah, I'm going to save Lucky. Does that go against your training as a zoologist to get involved in, in an interaction yeah, completely. like that? If it was out completely in the wild, I wouldn't have got involved, but it was actually in our rehab centre, so there's a couple reasons. We had other dogs in there. We also had invested a lot in these dogs. Uh, If it was a wild pack and they had an interaction with lions and Mother Nature is Mother Nature, but these lions could also set all the other dogs that we had in the area, in the rehab centre. So I hopped up. Anyway, it was a dog. I could tell it was a dog. That was all. I had my head torched. So I grabbed a big stick and I charged four lions on foot. What? Four lions? um, Yeah, and chased them off. Snatched the puppy up and ran back, or didn't run, but picked the dog up. Still, the lions had gone, hopefully, or at this stage I thought they had. Off they went, put Lucky back, thought it was dead. They had a huge puncture wound through the head. 
said, no, you can't die. So we put uh, Lucky in rehab. Uh, Lucky's still with us. Uh, Lucky is now going on to, can't be released, sadly, but uh, living the life of luxury in the rehab centre with another animal called Peanut. Uh, that was another unreleasable rehab animal. And yeah, Lucky's a classic. He's got a, a bit of a tilted head, um, obviously <laughs> due to the line attack, but Lucky lives to tell another story. What did your wife Angela think about this decision of yours to chase, charge four lions at night with a stick to reclaim this puppy? Uh, she was back in, here in Perth, but when I told her, she went, oh, you're stupid, but did you save the dog? <laughs> I went, yeah, I did. So um, yeah, we're not out there in the wild chasing off natural interaction. This was in our rehab centre on our turf. As uh, you, you mentioned Perth, and when you're not there with these beloved painted dogs of yours in Africa, you work at Perth Zoo, which for a long time was home to a very famous and much-loved animal in, in WA, Patricia. Who was Patricia. Right, Trisha was our 60-year-old Asian elephant and I tell a lot of people she actually transcended being an animal and she's probably the only one I've ever seen have such an impact on the local community. You know, Trish, you know, sort of six generations of people got to see Trish grow from a baby right through to an adult elephant and then become the matriarch to three other elephants and... She was just a sweetheart. I was there when she took her last breath, which was an honour, but also very sad. But the impact she had on the community, you'll never see anything else like that. We had the Premier and the Minister come in. We had memorial walks. We made a documentary on her before she passed on her final days. Government house was lit up. Um, She's now buried in the grounds of, of Perth Zoo with a nice memorial headstone. And I've never seen an animal for the outpouring of emotion, but to also touch so many people in a positive way. What was it about her temperament or her, her, her character that connected with people so strongly, do you think? I think she was just so caring, very placid nature. We are very lucky. We are one of the, at that stage, we are one of the few zoos in the world that still worked actively in with elephants and we take Trisha out for walks, which she loved and she had her favourite spots in the zoo and she'd, you know, pitch up to say hello to everyone in a controlled circumstance and just touch people's hearts. It's, you know, this large mega vertebrate that so softly walked around the zoo and was just intrigued by other people, just touched people's hearts. You know, we have people still coming up with tears in their eyes that remember Trisha when they were a child and then they brought, you know, they brought their grandkids in to uh, see Trisha and, and, you know, all that sort of generational appreciation and love, one for Trisha, but also, you know, the bigger story of conservation. She was a great ambassador for her wild cousins and she just had it all. <laughs> Do you think that the kind of, um, that connection that, that humans can have with animals in a zoo setting, like you, you're describing there. Can that translate, do you think, to to a bigger concern, like with your beloved African dogs that, you know, most people don't feel that same kind of pull towards or don't have experience of? Like, how do you go about trying to champion this animal that means so much to you, both to, to humans where they live in, in Africa, but also to humans on the other side of the world in Australia? What's the secret to getting people to care? Well, I think we need to, you know, tell the story and having the animals in zoos around the world tells the story. People need to see them and understand them and we need to educate the people about them. A lot of them probably won't get to Africa or, you know, it's the only place I'll see them in the zoo, but they want to do something, change their lifestyle, change the way in which they consume and different things, depending on the animal and what threatening processes they have. And you know, they're ambassador species for the wild cousins. They're also often the insurance population in case these animals do go extinct in the wild because we manage our, our programs to a high genetic level. There may be a need one day to introduce these captive animals back into the wild. So it's all about telling the story and how people can make a difference in their, their life, whether it's for the African painted dog or it's for the Asian elephant because it's for Trisha or locally at home, you know, building frog ponds or recycling or, you know, containers for change, whatever it is that, you know, 
people want to do, we need to get them on this journey. Got one earth to live on and we're custodians, so we need to take good care of it. Without it, we've got no home. You know, we've got to defend the defenceless because they can't talk. So we need to be that voice. And zoos around the world do, you know, educate and communicate these messages and try and engage people to go on that journey. And look, if I hadn't seen painted dogs, I only saw them in a book, but then I saw them in the zoo and then look, you know, where I am today. <laughs> so um, it all is sort of interconnected, but we're, you know, we've got to educate people, we've got to make changes and, and the time is now. I reckon that little seven-year-old in Dubbo would have been pretty happy with the life that you've made for yourself, John. Yeah, I was once told don't die with regrets and I haven't regretted anything yet. Do you imagine that right up into your your old age, you'll be camping out in the in the savannah hoping to be within sneezing distance of some painted dogs? We will do this until we, we can't do it any longer. Obviously, we are hoping to retire to Africa full time. Heavens forbid if I won lotto, I'd probably be there tomorrow. But <laughs> yeah, no, we, we will um, continue this quest and we can't take the foot off the accelerator. Soon as you do, uh, our projects don't get the money they need and, you know, the dogs don't get saved and the next generation of students don't get educated. Well, it is really fascinating to hear about your work and I think those dogs, all of them, are lucky to have you. Thank you so much for being my guest. Yeah, no worries. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. John Lemon was my guest, and John is the founder of Painted Dog Conservation. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, I'm James Valentine, and on the brand new season of my podcast, Headroom, I want to know, what do people believe? I believe that music is like the sinew between the spiritual and the complex. Maybe they believe in karma, heaven, or the innate goodness of people. Even if you only believe that your avocado sandwich is the best avocado sandwich there's ever been. These are the kind of questions I'll be asking some high-profile Australians like George Miller and Claire Wright on my podcast, Headroom, The Belief Series, available now on the ABC Listen app.